So my name's Owen, as, as I said, I'm, I'm the youth worker here. Uh, it's a real privilege to uh, talk to you this morning, carry on this series on the uniqueness of Christ. Um, I was thinking in preparation for this morning's uh, sermon about the different ways that we introduce and identify ourselves. Um, I've just done two of them for you there. My name's Owen, that's the name I was given by my parents, and I'm the youth worker. That's one of the identifying things about me. And there's many different ways that we can identify ourselves um, and introduce ourselves. And I've found a lot of them often are in relation to other things. So for instance, if you say, which one's Owen? You might say, oh, he's the one with the glasses, um, the wonky glasses at the moment, you might notice. Um, or he's, uh, when I first met Catherine's family, um, I was introduced as Catherine's fiance. Um, they didn't introduce me as this is Owen, he's the youth worker, because that would have been strange. Um, the relation, the link between us was I was Catherine's fiance. Um, and so that's sometimes what I'm known as. And when I was doing this research, there was one sort of method of naming and introducing that really struck up um, a chord in what I was talking on. And that came from Icelandic culture, um, this amazing um, way that they don't really do surnames in the same way, but your last name is based on your parents' name, and then they add... Uh, if you're your father's name, they add son on the end. And if it's the mother's name, then daughter is added on the side. So I would be um, Owen Lawrenson. That would be my name. Um, or for an example, by the way, do your own ones, because I will be asking you in a second to, to tell me your Icelandic name. Um, but for an example, if we took Simon Fry, for instance. Um, so Simon would stay the same, um, but his father's name is David, or actually, if we were to be extra Icelandic, then we might add er on the end, so it'd be Simon Er Fry. Um, but then we take David, and it'd be David Son or Davison, Simon Er Davison. Um, so that's what Si would look like if he was um, slightly more Norse. Um, so yes, and any other any other ones? Let me think. Uh, Tom, who would you be? Tom Olson. Paulson, nice, very nice. Barney, what would you be? Barney Davison, yes, very good. Um, I think Sarah, can I? Oh, you be a daughter. David, oh, oh, your mother's name. Amazing. Perfect. So um, maybe after this morning's service, introduce yourself to each other in your Icelandic names. Um, well, why am I talking about Icelandic names? That's because I want to talk this morning about two titles that Jesus went by, which is all wrapped up in this idea of um, sons. And it's the son of God and the son of man. Now, if I was to poll you guys um, about Jesus' name, many of you would come up with the word Christ. Um, and I'm sure most of us, when we were younger, or maybe still do, um, used to think that that was his surname. So you'd have Jesus or Mr. Christ if you were being formal. Um, but actually, Christ is, much like with my introduction, tells us a bit about Jesus' identity. The word Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means Messiah, um, which is anointed one. And there's a lot of history about that title. 
But this title, the Son of Man, and, and the one Son of God as well, is the one that Jesus uses, well, Son of Man is the one that Jesus uses to describe himself most in the Gospels. Yeah, I don't think many of us would use that if we were to describe Jesus, which I think is interesting. Now, at a simple level, this morning, there are two things that I want to leave you with today, and that is that Jesus is the true human, and Jesus is fully God. Jesus is the true human, and Jesus is fully God. We first see the Bible using the term son of man in the Old Testament. For example, we see in Job 25, 6, how much less man, who is a worm, and the son of man, who is a maggot. A nice positive statement for us this morning. Maybe write it and put it on your fridge. Uh, within the book of Psalms, we find the same classical forms as within Job, which uses son of man in parallel to man to describe humanity as a whole. For example, Psalm 8, 5. What is man that you should remember him and the son of man that you should be mindful of him? A bit more well known, that one. And I always think that that's, there's an equivalent there to the um, modern day where we'll say things like what well, uh, Neil Armstrong said, one small step for man and a giant leap for mankind. There's that parallel there between the two. And then in Ezekiel, we see a slight shift where God uses the son of man to refer to the author himself, Ezekiel. 94 times son of man appears to be a title for the humanity of the author much how the word human may be used in English. So it's a bit like God saying, oi, human, listen to me. Um, I said this in the earlier one. I, I don't, no one sort of got this, I suppose. I do this with cats. I don't know why, but if I see a cat, I'll often say, hello, cat. Um, and I don't know why. I just claim it by the name. Um, I don't call it by the name. Um, but this human name, this son of man name, is used to shine a light on the contrast between God and man, the speaker and the author, to remind us that the speaker is God, fully God, and the author is man. And there is a real contrast between the two. We should listen to God because we are but men, humankind, as it were. So when we read the son of man, in the majority of the Old Testament, we're talking about the class of human. We're talking about humanity, either as a people group or as a concept. It's a, when we talk about the son of man, it's a bit like saying they're a human in the class of humanity. And then we read this title, Son of God. And there's a sort of similar feeling within there. We do read the Trinitarian element of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because that's important. But we also read similarly that the title of Son of God doesn't just mean one who is physically born of God by conventional means. We're not Greeks here. We don't think of Zeus coming down and having a child like a demigod, like Hercules. That's not what we believe. And that's where many of my Muslim friends through discussion get caught out. Because how can God have, physically have a son? But when we speak of the Son of God, we talk about one who is of the class of God, who is God. And our doctrine is then shaped by the truth of the oneness of God that we read in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But we also see Jesus claims not to just be a descendant of God, but he is God incarnate, the eternal begotten Son of God. 
So let's delve a little deeper into the practicalities of Jesus's divinity and his title as Son of Man. So I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, Jesus as the eternal Son of God, because Sai is going to be covering that over the next week or two. But I do want to concentrate our attention on this amazing passage in Matthew 14. It's a famous passage in which Jesus tells the disciples to go out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a great storm builds up, and they're struggling to stay afloat. And then suddenly, they see this figure walking towards them on the water. And of course, because wouldn't you be? They're terrified. (laughs) And then Jesus, who it is, says, do not be afraid. And we see Peter go out and meet him, but sink because of lack of faith. And then we hear these words in verse 32. And when they, that's Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the only time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is called the Son of God by his disciples. And I think that's quite important because at this point, the disciples have seen Jesus' other miraculous deeds. He's cast out demons. He's healed the blind and the sick. But we never see him being proclaimed as the Son of God. So what is the difference between those miracles and the one that we see here and the one that we heard about, which Ben really amazingly read for us earlier? I think that the difference is seen in Psalm 107, which talks about God's people wandering away from him and finding themselves at sea in the wind and the waves. Psalm 107 says, And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. The Israelites would have known their heritage. They would have known of the God who rescued their ancestors by taking them through the Red Sea. The God who called down pillars of cloud and fire. They would have known that only God has power over nature. The nations pray to their idols for fertility and for rain, but Yahweh, the creator God, the God of Israel, can command the storms to be still and the waves to be hushed. And here is this man, this rabbi that they've been listening to, who speaks of his father in heaven, who's performed miracles, the son of man on earth. And he's just stilled the waves and the storm. It's such a powerful statement of Jesus' divinity to his disciples. Jesus shows in this moment that he's not just a good moral teacher or rabbi, but is the divine son of God, by which we mean he is in the order of God. He is God, the true God of Israel, taking human form incarnate. And if you're here today, and maybe, well, if you're listening online, and maybe you've heard good things that Jesus has said, maybe in an RS class, or maybe in churches, you've heard of these good things and nice things that Jesus has said, but you're wondering, why do we revere and worship him? Well, this is why, because Jesus is God. And when we speak about the amazing things that Jesus has done, we must always read it through the lens of Jesus's divinity. 
When we look at the cross, we must always read it through the lens of Jesus's divinity. It's the reason why I have no problem with the doctrine of penal substitution. I don't have a problem with the doctrine of the wrath of God against sin being put upon Jesus. And it's because Jesus wasn't just a random, random man who was caught in the crossfires of an angry God. He was God, dying for his people in human form, in the form of a man, the son of man. So let's look a bit deeper at that title. Now, earlier I said a couple of ways that the phrase the son of man is used in the Old Testament as God speaking to humanity and distinguishing himself from humankind. But there's one more specific usage of son of man that I want to talk about. I'm sure many of you think, but Owen, you haven't mentioned Daniel 7. Um, I hear you chant um, very loudly. Um, And so we'll look at Daniel 7. So if you'd like to turn there. Now, Daniel sees this incredible vision of these terrible beasts, each of them representing an arrogant nation or kingdom. And then in the vision, there comes this super beast who has all of these horns and symbolizes the most terrible empire of the lot of them. In the Old Testament, horns are often used to denote kings. And one of the kings exalts himself in his nation and says that he is above God and persecutes God's people. But then we see God, known as the Ancient of Days, sets up his throne, takes up his throne, and he judges the beast and throws it into the lake of fire. And then we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Hopefully you heard some parallels with that amazing verse in, a couple of verses in Philippians we read earlier. So we see this figure this son of man figure, who we read in the interpretation that Daniel is given of his vision, is a representation of God's people, or as we would read through the lens of the New Testament, is a representative of God's people. And as we see God's people suffer under the beast, so too the representative of the people suffers. But then the beast is dealt with, and we see he is then exalted And comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days and is enthroned with him, given dominion and glory and honor. This son of man who's come from Israel, from the people of God, the people who are set apart, is set apart even further to declare the image of God in a way that no other human could do because of the problem of sin. In a time when Daniel describes humanity and these nations as beasts, The son of man, Daniel 7 says, will be exalted and be given dominion. But when we look at the world in the time of Daniel, no such man exists. No such man can exist who can overcome the problem of sin. Now, one representative for the whole people, this son of man concept, it's not an alien concept to Israel or the Bible. We see this through the role of the high priest who speaks on behalf of the people before God. 
But we see throughout Scripture that even the high priest cannot fully bridge this gap between man and God because they are just as sinful and fallen as the rest of their nation. They cannot stand in the holiness of God except once a year they have to consecrate themselves fully. And even then they take their lives into their own hands when they do it. Well, technically they don't do it in their own hands. They take it, put their lives into God's hands. But um, you know what I mean. So let's fast forward to Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial by the high priest of the day, Caiaphas. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So they knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. That was quite a public thing that Jesus was saying through his teaching. But what they really want to show, specifically to Rome, is that Jesus comes as this Christ, Messiah figure that I was speaking of earlier. Uh, one who came to usurp earthly power and claim a kingdom in Israel which would rival Rome. That's what they really want to show to Rome to get Jesus into trouble. But Jesus said to them, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard of his blasphemy. So why did the high priest get so angry at his statement? Jesus doesn't claim to be the Messiah in that. Say. He doesn't say, yes, I am. He says, you have said so, which we all know basically is Jesus saying, yeah, I am. However, what makes Caiaphas so angry? Well, it's because of those words we read earlier. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel, the representative of the people of God, the pure and only true Son of Man. And with that means he is laying claim to the authority to judge and rule over heaven and earth at the right hand of the Father. And you see, at this moment, two temples coming together and really butting heads. This one temple which Caiaphas represents, which is a temple that was built under Zerubbabel, rebuilt under Zerubbabel. We have heard about that. Obviously, we were looking at Nehemiah beforehand. Um, and this temple which was doing sacrifices and the men inside were trying to make sacrifices to make them right with God. But there was an awareness that they couldn't because they were sinful and fallen. And this other temple, the living temple, Jesus, the embodiment of God dwelling with his people, tabernacling with his people, the son of God. And Jesus is not only the temple, but he is also the high priest, the representative of Israel, the son of man. And that's why it's so important that Jesus is both the son of God and the son of man, because he is the dwelling of God amongst his people. He is the image of the invisible God, as we read in Colossians. But he is the representative, the son of man, the one who comes from Israel to, on behalf of the people. And it means that only Jesus can bridge that gap between God and man because he's the only one who comes of Israel and represents Israel. And as we know, because Israel was meant to be a blessing to the rest of the nations, us and God. 
That is why they call blasphemy and send him to be executed. Jesus is the incarnate son of God with power over the wind and the waves, the begotten eternal son, which means he has the power to judge and to save and to forgive sins. Hallelujah. (laughs) But Jesus is also the representative of Israel, fully man. We see that in his temptation by the devil. We see that in his hunger in the desert, his tiredness in the boat, as we heard earlier. He comes from the people of God as one of them. And so is the true representative of God's people as the son of man in Daniel 7. And that is great news for us this morning, brothers and sisters, because as it says in Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. See that language being repeated, that going through the heavens, ascending on the clouds. We see it in Daniel, we see it in Matthew, and now we see it in Hebrew. And we see it in other areas in the in scriptures as well. Jesus, the Son of God, let us then hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. As son of man, Jesus was fully human and so fully compassionate with the human condition. But also as son of God, he was able to perfectly reflect the image of God, holy and pure. And so was the only one who was able to be a perfect sacrifice for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is the takeaway from this? Confidence, assurance, mercy, grace. We can draw close to the ancient of days because we have in Christ, the Son of Man, ascended on the clouds and been seated with him in heavenly places as we read in Ephesians. If you trust in Jesus today, you are saved through the Son of Man the representative, he has done what we could never do. Hallelujah. What mercy, what grace, what a God. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you that though we could do nothing to save ourselves from where we were, you sent your son, Jesus, as that perfect living sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth and living that life. That life that not only points us as a model to how we should live, but also means that we can be saved into that life through your death. Lord, thank you that we don't need to try and gain anything because we fall on your mercy and grace. But Lord, thank you that we have all to gain because of you. Holy Spirit, through this week, let us remember the mercy and grace that we have been given. Lord, let that push us further towards wanting to share your gospel. Let's invite people to Alpha because we know what it is like to be taken and held in the arms of God because of what you have done. Lord, bless this week and bless these people. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you, Owen.